Our research in the psychology world indicates that individuals with a belief system recover quicker, mm. engage more effectively in therapy, and see better results. I'm referencing faith, a belief system, the things that we hope in and believe in. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Dr. Christy Kane. She has her doctorate in psychology. She's a certified mental health counselor with over 20 years of experience leading and guiding in mental health. You can look up a TED Talk that she presents. She focuses her work on neurology, mental health stability, and how electronics are affecting the human brain. That's a timely topic. Christy Kane, thank you for coming in and speaking today. Thank you, Steve. I'm excited to be here. You are a former owner and clinical director of two different residential treatment centers. You've worked with youth learning skills to contribute to society, to manage their lives. Actually, quite a long bio that I might let people find at your website, which is drchristykane.com. I am fascinated by what you've agreed to talk about today, which is the relationship between faith and mental health. And from what I gather, sometimes they support each other, and sometimes suffering in one shows up as suffering in the other. Is that an accurate assessment? It does, depending on how we translate things. One can be supportive in that area, and that at times can also seem to create division. You know, it's interesting, Steve, our research in the psychology world indicates that individuals with a belief system recover quicker, mm. engage more effectively in therapy, and see better results. Now, I think it's important when I say that, I'm referencing faith, a belief system. I'm not necessarily referencing a particular organization of religion or maybe even cultures as much as the things that we hope mm. in and believe in. And has anyone been able to figure out why that is? I think by nature, when we're struggling with things that create dissidence or incongruency in our lives, when we have the ability to believe things are going to get better, when we have that power to sit and not necessarily maybe need an answer today, it empowers our ability to recover. There's a lot of research that shows our ability, which is changing in our world today, but our ability to not know, but still believe. Hmm. To sit with the unknown is actually empowering to our mental health. I don't know if you remember that marshmallow study way back when. This is the kids who had a marshmallow yes. in front of them. Mm -hmm. Take it now. Yep, or don't or take it and get a reward. Yes. And so the long-term research of the individuals who participated in the study, those who were able to wait, even though they didn't understand, had better mental health overall. Hmm. And our society today is being driven by instant information. I'm not going to talk about the impacts of social media, 
But what I want us to understand is we're losing that ability to wait and be still. Christy, I'm frustrated if it's going to take two days for my Amazon package <laughs> to, arrive. <laughs> to arrive or five seconds for your page to load, <laughs> right? Yes. But faith contains a part of waiting. It contains a part of being okay with not knowing. And for so many, especially in that mental health world, if we can wait, if we can know that there aren't answers now, but hope in answers to come, there's greater ability to adapt and to hold and to believe in things getting better. Mm. We see a dramatic change in our world today in this instant information highway. What we see is an expectation of fix it now or give me the answer now. And sometimes in that process of not being able to wait, we see the increased levels of anxiety and depression and worry. Could you maybe walk us through an example, an aggregate or a fictional client comes to you? And what might they share? And then how would you help them through that? So many times, especially where I practice, there is a predominant religious faith. So where I live, the predominant religion faith would be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Through the years, there are lots of changes that come about both in policy mm -hmm. within that religious organization in administrative purposes or different things like that. Oftentimes, individuals will come into my office in a faith crisis, if you will, because there's some kind of policy change, administrative change, or sometimes in their own interpretation, they may think doctrine has changed. Mm -hmm. And that change disrupts their safety, their ability to fill the spirit, their belief system. And so, you know, I have a client recently that came into my office due to some policy changes that took place at Brigham Young University. They were a student there and felt that it traumatized their belief system mm. and that they wanted answers now. They wanted to know why were these policies being made? Who had the authority to make those policies? Did they see the long-term impact? and that it didn't jive with how they felt mm -hmm. it should go. And so I had the opportunity to talk with that individual and say, okay, tell me really about your faith. Everything that you're bringing to me that's disrupting you emotionally and creating this depression and this anxiety, because they were even questioning whether or not they wanted to continue as a member of that religious organization. And as we walked through that, they were able to recognize a separation between policy and decisions and spirituality and their faith and the things that they really wanted to hold on to. And we talked about the ability to recognize that we aren't always going to have an answer in a faith crisis. We're not always going to understand why certain things happen, but we can return back to the well. We can return back to some of those spiritual things. We talked about promptings that this individual felt that they had in their lives. We talked about the things that they foundationally believed in. And by the time, you know, we were done with our therapy, the person recognized that for them 
within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was still the well that they wanted to hold on to. And so their concerns, they needed to be able to sit aside on a shelf, accepting that they were there, but realizing right now they weren't going to get the answers that they were seeking, but that was okay. Now, you mentioned that they were shaken by changes, Mm -hmm. and I can understand confusion, sort of thinking of the brain side of this, Mm -hmm. but why is that a faith crisis? Is it because we have maybe based our faith or belief on something that's not that anchor that you're talking about? Is that part of it? Sure. I think within all religious sects, there's the functionality process. And then there's the foundational principles of belief. Mm -hmm. And I think as humans, we tend to tie them together or confuse them together. And when we do that, and there are some significant change or talk given or policy brought forth, it can create that faith crisis because we don't always as humans separate the two. And so I think it's important to understand that that faith is a belief in the foundational principles of whatever religion a person belongs to. And then there's always going to be policies and procedures and processes of the, I guess I want to say, entity or organization that manages and is the steward of that Mm. doctrine and faith, right? Which consists of people. Yes, and, and people... Man, people make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time, you know. But we tend to idolize in our misunderstandings and forget that people are people. Like sometimes within different organizations, they'll make a person a saint, if Mm. you will, and they're just a person. Or they'll put someone on a pedestal, and then that person falls off that pedestal in that person's eyes. And then they have a faith crisis because the faith was in the person and not so much in that individualized doctrine. That idea of waiting and things not being what you think they're going to be makes me think of Mother Teresa, now St. Teresa, yes, and her experience with the homes for the destitute and dying, starting in Calcutta, Kolkata now, and other places, and that she shared with her priest or her spiritual advisor her journals of the agony of at some point she started to not feel that presence of God. In spite of the fact that she knew what she was doing was good and it is what had built up her faith before. But that sounds like that's not an isolated incident. You know, I don't think so. I love Mother Teresa's faith to move forward, even though, like you said, she talks about having that one very clear calling and then never really having such a clarity for the rest of her life. But she knew that clarity so well that it gave her the ability to continue. It doesn't mean that she didn't struggle. It doesn't mean that sometimes she wondered, why am I still not getting that type of clarity? I mean, Steve, I think that brings it into a segue that's really important. Oftentimes when individuals are struggling with like major depression or anxiety or bipolar or other personality issues, they may have been used to experiencing spiritual directive a certain way. And then when that imbalance to the brain, the neurological chemicals comes about, they may feel that their spiritual directive has altered, that they don't have the same promptings and the same light and same understanding that they used to. And they may wonder and question, did God leave me? Am I not worthy enough? What should I be doing that I'm not doing? 
And the reality is sometimes that's a time of standing still, realizing you've done nothing wrong, and realizing that there may now be other avenues to explore in your ability to maintain that trust and hope in your faith. You know, I have many people that struggle with why isn't my depression being taken away? I pray, I fast, I do all the things that have been suggested, Mm. and yet we know depression is a neurological change in the brain. And we do know that faith and hope and those things can help us in managing and working through, but it doesn't mean it will necessarily take it away. And that's a hard place to be. And that's that dissidence. That's that incongruency. And that's where it's setting with the understanding that faith in religious beliefs does not necessarily equate to alleviation of pain or difficulty, but more the hope in knowing I can make it today and then I can make it tomorrow. This is kind of the river flowing the other direction, like the tide changes. A faith crisis could trigger depression, perhaps. Yes. But you're talking about someone who starts experiencing depression or bipolar disorder, and that triggering the faith crisis the other way. Mm -hmm. And I try and be really open that I'm someone who has and do experience some level of depression. Mm -hmm. And I've actually had that experience of thinking, what changed? Because I'm still living the same life and all of that. And I love what you said. I think we need to normalize that this is a condition that we need to talk about because there's lots you can do about it. Yes. And I like the fact that you point both. We can have a faith crisis that can create depression and can create anxiety. And then we can have a mental health crisis that can create a faith crisis. It goes both ways. You are correct. And foundationally, we come back to the well in all aspects. We may not be feeling the way that we used to feel. We may not have all the answers that we desire. Being able to be still is very empowering to faith and mental health. And we live in a lightning speed world. There's so much research that shows that more and more individuals are not comfortable with not knowing, not having an answer, that, that incongruency moment, right? Mm. And yet it's so powerful for the brain and for our faith when we can wait for the second marshmallow. <laughs> Be still and know. A marshmallow is on the way. I yes. said to, to quote the scripture, yes. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's a good one. I'll have to think about that. <laughs> I actually love you said that they had followed up with. They did. Uh, mm-hmm. It would be interesting to say in, in your biography someday, one of these folks, I was one of the marshmallow kids. <laughs> yes. Yep. So you talk about being still. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about meditation with one of my kids one time. I said, Mm -hmm. what if we do this for just like three minutes? And they said, Dad, that is the most boring thing I can imagine. And they were almost panicking at the idea (laughs) of be still, clear your thoughts. Do you have to work with people and say, you can do this and please try this? What is that process? Well, I think meditation is an individualized as the person because like I'm going to join your kids in that. Like when people say, okay, we're going to sit still and not think about anything for a few minutes, I'd be like, are you kidding? There's no way I'll do that. 
I think meditation is the positive empowerment process to the brain. There's a lot of research that shows the brain by itself um, coming out of UC Davis is a instrument of survival that sees the negative. The brain is always trying to make sure that we're safe and mm. looking for anything that can threaten us. But there's tons of research that shows that we can create that positivity within the brain by the input that we seek. And so that meditation process of empowering, especially in the field of faith and mental health, is the things we know to be right. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk to people about meditating, it's like meditate about things that are good and beautiful and right. I understand right now this is a faith crisis for you. I understand right now you're struggling because this decision was made in, in your faith. But tell me what's right. Tell me what's good. And when they can do that, they can oftentimes set that which they don't know what to do with on a shelf. I mean, there's lots of things. You're not saying forget about it, ignore it. You're just no. saying see more. Yes. I mean, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and uh, I'm a divorced female in that religion. And that organization is very family-based. They definitely open their arms and, and let those know who are single that were needed and wanted. But the culture oftentimes may say the opposite. Mm. And even in my own personal life, I've had to sit still and go, okay, Christy, it's not about being divorced and it's not about you. This is kind of the culture. The culture is changing. It's going to be okay. And so I've had to set some of those hurts and those difficulties aside because my anchor is in the faith that I know to be true. I talk to people, of course, of all different faiths and denominations, different traditions, and they, almost without exception, talk to me about how they see God working in their lives. Actually, it's very inspiring to me. Mm -hmm. So if someone comes to you and they have had the experience of receiving some guidance or answers to prayer— and then suddenly they're experiencing some sort of crisis or depression or other mental health issue, of course, that's the first place they go. Mm -hmm. But then it sounds like people might blame themselves of, wait, this is not being fixed, so thus I must be doing this wrong. Is that hard for people who perhaps have had really strong religious experiences to say, maybe I need something more than just faith? Like, maybe God sent my therapist. <laughs> Um, you know, I think we're getting better at asking for help in that area, don't you? Because I think we're I getting think so. more. I hear about it. Yeah, we're talking about it more. It's interesting. As humans, we tend to blame ourselves first. And I'm not exactly sure all of the science behind why we do that. Maybe because we believe if we blame ourselves, we can possibly fix it. And we always want to fix it. You know, like we always want an answer and that's, again, where that mental health faith comes in is knowing there may not be an answer. It's not your fault. And then going back and remembering the times when you had those answers. Mm. You know, you may not have them now. You may never have them again because of the depression or whatever you're struggling with. But you can know what you knew then to be true and find new avenues now. 
Mm. new direction, new pathways for guidance. What? You're telling me I have to learn and grow? (laughs) Yeah, that's something that seems to be a part of this mortal existence, whether we like it or not. (laughs) Dragged, kicking, and screaming, we we get chances, at least, if we'll take them. One thing I was also going to add is, you know, suicide gets talked about so much in our society right now. And one common denominator, like people will ask mental health professionals all the time, you know, what do I look for to know if someone might be suicidal? The one thing we do know is that most of the time when a person has reached a place for that choice is they have lost hope. And that comes back to relying on your faith, relying on that belief system and so that's very empowering to us is we, we need to constantly, whether we disagree with something, we don't understand something, we need to spend every day seeking to maintain hope. It's really important to us as humans. Oh, you're making me think of Emily Dickinson. I think it's hope is a thing with wings, which mm-hmm. sounds like it can lift us. It does. It gives us In those dark moments when we can return to that faith, because we're all going to have a mental health crisis. We're going to. Wait, will you say that again? Okay. We're all going to have a mental health crisis. That sounds like interesting information. I don't think most of us think we will. Whether it's a death of a loved one, Mm. whether it's a divorce, a financial crisis, uh, a child making a decision contrary to what we think they should, a loss of a job, a chemical imbalance in the brain. I don't know anyone who won't have a mental health crisis in their lifetime. We'll process them differently, Mm -hmm. but we will all have that mental health crisis. And it will be that faith and hope that can lift us through that. You have worked with young people a lot. Mm -hmm, I have. How do you prepare or how can a parent, someone listening, or perhaps even a religious leader help Prepare kids for those things that are coming in their future, those challenges and those things that will make them question themselves or their faith or whatever it might be. Are there good things we can purposefully do? Allow young people to sit with ambiguity and unknown. Don't. And does that mean you have to explain to them what's happening in that process? Sure. It's really important to teach young people how to find answers for themselves. Mm. Allow them to struggle. Allow them to come to you with solutions. The brain seeks to find pathways to solve problems. We're almost all problem solvers. And in the journey of learning to do that from a very young age, then when those faith crises come, when those mental health difficulties arrive, we've empowered them with that skill set of saying, okay, I've solved these type of problems before. I can do that now. I think a great disservice sometimes we do in a desire to rescue because we love and we care is we jump in and we provide the answers. And when we do that, we A, don't let them wait for the second marshmallow. Mm. And B, we don't provide them with the neurological growth of capacity of being okay with not knowing and not having the answers today. There's many things about my faith that I don't have answers for. There's lots of questions I'd love to have answered, but I know 
I know what I do know is enough for now, and I'm okay to wait for more to come. But we don't wait today. We have five or six screens on our computers. We type in and we want an answer to something right now. And sometimes the answers we get aren't factual. They're not researched. They're not accurate. And so helping children to recognize, to wait, to trust, and to give it time is really important. It sounds like we could model that as adults in our own lives with our kids. Oh, yes. Maybe we usually think that we as parents provide stability by being the perfect rocks that don't bend in the wind and all of this. But maybe we would do better to say, here's what I'm experiencing right now. And here's what I don't know right now, whether with my work, with uncertainty in the world or whatever it might be. Would that help them to know that that's okay? Oh, yes, Steve. I think that's a wonderful insight. When we allow our children to know that we don't know, but we're okay with that. Or if we allow our children to know that, you know what? I struggle with depression and here's some ways I manage Mm. it. Here's how I use my faith in my life to deal with my mental health concerns. Yeah, those open, honest conversations are so important. And you know what? At younger and younger ages, the exposure of kids today because of the internet is much different than when you and I were younger. And so parents have to begin the process of conversations at five and four that we might have started at 10 and 12. Mm. Yes, because a child needs to be occupied for a few minutes while dinner is being finished, and here's the tablet. Mm-hmm. You can just start your game and not even have to think about what might be worrying you mm-hmm. <laughs> until yep. it just looms so large that there's no other choice. Yep. You talked about allowing our kids to struggle. That is hard. That is painful. It is because we love our children and we love family members and friends. We want to give the answers and solutions. But we'll be much more effective if we help them come to those answers and solutions with guidance. It doesn't mean hands off and ignore them, but it means allowing them to explore. And how about when they are struggling and they make a different choice than you hope they will make? That can cause your own, your own crisis <laughs> yes, as an adult. <laughs> you know, I, I work oftentimes with parents whose children have chosen to leave their faith. And that's a hard one for many, many parents. And I then remind individuals that we believe foundationally in the religion that I belong to of the gift of agency. And that we allow in the process of teaching correct principles and then governing yourself. And so it is difficult, but it's more important that a child feels loved in the choices that they make than to feel shamed in the choices that they make. Because in that shaming, we'll create a division between them and us. But in that shaming, we potentially impact their personal faith understanding and their personal mental health. So if I understand that, that would be me Maybe being able to express that was not the choice I hoped you would make, and then not just words, but words and actions that, but that does not change that I love you and we have a relationship. It can't be withholding, like, I'll not talk to you very much and hope that you'll go, I'll change my mind so that mom will like me again or dad will like me again. Yes. You know, it's been very sad sometimes in my experience as a mental health professional when 
I will hear family members say, well, because my child has chosen this or a member of my family has chosen this, um, they're never allowed in my home again. Mm. And I think I don't believe that's the foundational Christ-like love that they believe in. I understand they're hurt and disappointed, but I tell parents in particular, please don't ever say something to your child that you may never be able to take back. Because if you say that and they believe that, you may never get the opportunity to repair that relationship. And there's a lot of years coming. So it's important to allow them to know that, as you said, I would have liked a different choice, but I love you. Mm. And I'm here to help however I can. That doesn't mean that we can't hold boundaries. You know, that's one thing I think in mental health and faith that people struggle with is what does it mean to hold boundaries that help in having good mental health, but still being that spiritual, Christ-like individual? That's confusing for a lot of people. And yet, even within the guidance of our Savior, Jesus Christ, you can see he held boundaries within the teachings within the New Testament that were appropriate for him and his mission and his life. Could you give an example of that? Yeah, there were moments when he would spend time alone so that he could recoup, I think, and, you know, and breathe and process. There are times when he offered correction when individuals perhaps misstepped, all based on love, but holding boundaries, right? And so often we misunderstand in, in faith, in lots of faiths, that, well, if I'm a loving person and true to my faith, then I have to allow this person to do this or that, or I have to keep trying. But no one deserves to be abused by anyone. And it, it's appropriate to love someone, but to say, I'm sorry, but I can't allow you to continue this. It doesn't mean I don't love you. It means I love you and I love myself. And so it's appropriate to understand boundaries in the perspective of faith and mental health. And that gets confused often. This skill you talked about, about not knowing and willing to be still, this whole idea of children making different choices or even a spouse or someone else making a different choice than you would hope for, boy, there's a big opportunity to practice that. There is. It doesn't sound fun. No, but it is empowering. <laughs> I don't think it's fun. And as a matter of fact, the wonderful thing I love about knowing what we hold as faith is the ability to say, I need a retry, <laughs> and I need to say I'm sorry, and let's rewind. And that beautiful power and faith of forgiveness for ourselves. I mean, that's the other one avenue in mental health and faith that combined in an interesting journey is the concept of self-forgiveness. Mm. That creates a lot of mental health issues for individuals because they don't have the capacity to forgive themselves. They struggle with that capacity. They can forgive others, but for some reason, they think they deserve to be punished, and they're seeking that punitive process, and that creates such severe mental health issues we see in, in the psychology world in all 
Mm. um, religious aspects of that inability of self-forgiveness. Wow. So if the world isn't punishing me, maybe I'll punish myself because I, I, quote, deserve it? Or is that conscious or unconscious? You know, I think it's a combination of both. Mm. There's this, sometimes we misunderstand the process of seeking to be perfect and we think we shouldn't have made the mistake that we made or we feel like in order to truly be forgiven, there must be this deep punishment because we think we've done something so terrible. And yet in that embracement of faith is that understanding that we are forgiven as much as we forgive others. And yet so many times in mental health, I have so many clients come to my office and I'm like, well, you don't know the horrible thing I did or da-da-da-da-da-da. And it could be something that they visited with their religious leader. They felt like they needed to do the, the confession process. You name it. And that 30 years later, they're still holding on to it. Mm. And that's creating that sadness Decades in of distress. Yes. Unnecessary. Yes. And so, so many times I find as a mental health professional, I'm seeking to guide individuals through whatever faith they belong to, that power of forgiveness, that beautiful gift of forgiving themselves. As we talk through possible topics before you're coming today, and obviously we need about six hours to pick lots of different things and do <laughs> yes, a seminar, yes. but one phrase that stuck with me as, as we spoke on the phone before this interview was this topic of counseling with God and my therapist. Mm-hmm. They don't have to be separate. As a matter of fact, um, I wrote an article a while ago for LDS Living on understanding where ecclesiastical authority stood and then where a mental health professional came into. Mm. Your religious belief can be a part of your therapy and can be so importantly tied together. Most therapists, not all, will ask if an individual has a particular religious faith. And I ask all the time, would you like that to be part of your therapy? Some individuals will say yes. Some will say no. Even if they say no, I can remind them to apply this from their religious channels as well Mm. and to ask for guidance and direction from where their faith is. Those who say, yes, I try to have a pretty good diversity of understanding of faiths so that I can say, okay, so in your belief system, this would mean that. I can encourage them, if they so desire, to pray, to seek guidance, to visit with their religious leaders, to go through that process of self-forgiveness, whatever is applicable. And when we can apply that faith in that counseling office, it's a beautiful experience. Now, some people, that faith isn't necessarily in a particular religious sect. It may be that they believe in the goodness of Mother Earth. Mm. So we talk about that. It may be that they believe humans are innately good. So we talk about that. But anytime in the clinical office that we can counsel from a perspective of a belief system, There's research that shows and supports an individual is able to improve quicker. Now, not every single case, but when we can counsel and combine their faith with their journey of mental health healing, there's deeper empowerment in the journey. 
You speak at parent nights at schools. You've worked with interventions for companies, mm -hmm. schools, families facing mental health challenges. Thank you for taking time to come and just have a one-on-one -on -one with me. But I think this is such good information, so useful. And tell about the book that you have. Yeah, I have a book out. They can get it at Cedar Ford and Amazon. And it is a book on trauma. It's a story of a woman's journey of how she healed from physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. And the title of the book is Fractured Souls, Splintered Memories, Unlocking the Boxes of Trauma. And there's a brand new conference for women that's coming up on May 7th in Sandy, Utah, which is South Salt Lake, called Find Your Voice. And tell me what women who are hearing this might be interested in from that. Thank you for asking. I'm so excited about this conference. Um, we've brought together women of diversity of faith with backgrounds in mental health directives. And this conference is going to talk about critical issues that women face across diversity of faiths. So we have women from different religious organizations speaking. We have women who have experienced certain traumatic events in their own lives. Most of the women speaking are authors. We have Dr. Susan Madsen. We have Carol McConkie. We have myself. We have Megan Decker and just um, a bunch of other women who will be speaking. And is there a place to go online for information? Yeah, they go to findyourvoiceconference.com. Excellent. Dr. Christy Kane, thank you for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Steve. That's our time for today. Thanks to Dr. Christy Kane for sharing her expertise and her faith. Find out more at drchristykane.com. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a five-star comment or review where you get your podcasts. That helps spread the word. Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithBYU. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, in good faith. <laughs>